Hi, I'm Jennifer Zeman, your host of the Food That Binds on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network. I'm a restaurant critic and food writer based out of Atlanta with over 15 years of experience. And this podcast is about food and relationships, the stories behind your favorite food personalities, their why instead of the how. Today, I'm joined by Candy Hom, aka Soup Belly. Candy is a self-described stay-at-home mom who also happens to be a food blogger with deft hands, a pop-up cook, and social justice advocate. Her opinions are as strong as her culinary chops, which is why I started following her in the first place. Hi, Candy. Thanks for being here. Hi, thanks for having me here. So could you introduce yourself to my listeners who may not know who you are and what you do? Uh, my name is Candy Hom, and I am a full-time stay-at-home mom, a part-time food blogger. And whenever I can, I sell food at pop-ups in the Atlanta area. I also help with various fundraisers, charities, and I recently started participating in um, mutual aid as well. And when did you know that food was going to be something that was a thing for you? I guess if you read like Anthony Bourdain's book, uh, No Reservations, he had a story where he went to um, France, I think, with his parents. And, you know, before that, he would just eat like fast food or whatever because he was a kid. He wanted to experience like what his parents were so passionate about. And he saw like them eating oysters and like having that excitement. So I thought about my childhood and when I first experienced that too, like that excitement. And I guess it would be all the endless trips to New York City. I'm from upstate New York. and but with, my parents were originally from New York City. And we would go there for like multiple trips a year and go to dim sum with our relatives or go to Chinese banquets, like weddings, anniversaries, like any kind of holiday we would celebrate with food. And as a kid, I took all of that for granted. And, you know, I just wanted to go to McDonald's. I wanted to get, <laughs> I wanted to go to Olive Garden. I was the and, same. I'm the kid yeah. of Mexican immigrants. And my mom and dad, now that I'm a restaurant critic, they love to remind me that all I wanted to eat was McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> I love McDonald's like, cheeseburgers. Yeah, it's and like, how did do. you become this person that's like passionate about food when that's what you ate as a kid? I think a lot of kids started out that way. You know, no, not a lot of people are like of gourmet food critic or what I like a, a cook or anything like in the very beginning, something had to happen. So I saw like my relatives and parents like get so excited about like the next dim sum outing. And like, as they're eating dim sum, they're like, what are we going to do for dinner? And I'm like, why do you guys think about food all like day? Like, people. I, <laughs> I like this. I'm, I'm like, always thinking yeah. of the next meal. <laughs> and I, I just didn't understand that fascination and the and the passion and like talking about food all day. So I, you know, I just wanted to go out and play and I wanted to do the other stuff. So I, I'm like, well, what what's so great about this food? Like, why why is dim sum so good? And I guess I was just like shoved in my face all like all the time, and I just took it for granted. I'm like, I'm just eating these dumplings, but what do I feel about them? You know, and then I started to differentiate like what I liked and disliked. And, you know, I guess that passion started when I was a kid. When you like think back to those dim sum experiences for me, like, and I see it happening with my own kid who's nine, the first bite, you're all, it's always the benchmark for the rest. When you eat dim sum yeah. still to this day, are yes. you comparing it to the way it tasted or the dumpling skin there? Yeah, I just want I want to grasp that excitement that I had when I was a kid that first time I had um hagao, the shrimp dumplings and I'm like that's it. That's what it's supposed to taste like. And I'm always trying to get that as I become older too. And I feel like I I'm having a harder time as I get older like trying to get that same same experience again. I don't know if it's because my taste buds are getting worse because I'm getting older or <laughs> Maybe the food's not as good, but um, it's this like constant strive to like make it better now or like to find places just as good as before. Something else that we had just kind of talked before this about was how you get asked, you've talked about, you get asked a lot about where you're from, but you say, I was raised here. This, I'm as American as I am Chinese. And also something that you said in another interview about how you didn't really feel like you belonged anywhere. And that really resonated with me. Can you speak more to that uh, about how you are as American as you are Chinese? Yeah, I was born and raised in Rochester, New York, and I was surrounded by 
non-Asians more than Asians. I don't think I, I think I was pretty much the only Asian kid in school until I went to middle school. So I think my parents, when they moved there, they tried to acclimate or, or, or I mean, assimilate to society. And like they, we did burgers every summer, you know, we would grill 4th of July, we would celebrate every American holiday. And my parents are pretty American too, for immigrants, like they, they really loved American culture. And they wanted to integrate that into our lives too, as well as like the Chinese holidays. So we celebrated Christmas, you know, dressed up for Halloween. We did everything. I think it was really exciting for them too. They didn't really have to try that hard. Like they just, I think they thought about or like dreamt about America for so long, like before they moved here, like they wanted to experience all that and they wanted to share that with us. And was Chinese food still like a big part of your everyday? Yeah. That, I mean, they also didn't have to try that hard either for that. Like that, that's just what they ate. And like, you know, we, I think we had an almost like a 50-50 balance of, you know, Chinese food and American food at home. We'd request like lasagna every week. We had like spaghetti night. And then my mom would also make, you know, she'd make all the dumplings, all the Cantonese dishes with, and living in upstate New York, we didn't have a lot of like Asian grocery stores or like Asian ingredients, but somehow she made that happen too. It's amazing. My grandmother used to literally bring suitcases full of tortillas and chicharrones, all these things from Mexico City for my parents because you couldn't even get cilantro at grocery stores in Atlanta when I was growing up, uh, which is we part of Mexican food. We didn't have cilantro. We didn't have a lot of the um, sauces used for Cantonese cooking. So my grandmother's from New York City would send us a huge box maybe once or twice a year of all the necessary components for like traditional dishes. And then we'd like ration that out and use it throughout the year. But now it's so much more readily available. And especially in Atlanta, we're so we're so lucky with Beaver Highway Farmers Market and Super H and all the amazing grocery stores that we have. You cook a lot, which is really the first thing that caught my eye about you because you just make the most beautiful Cantonese dishes in addition to a bunch of other stuff. But you started as a cooking blog or did you start Soup Belly as a restaurant blog? I started as a cooking blog maybe 11 or 12 years ago because being in upstate New York, we didn't have a lot of Chinese restaurants and I wanted to just mimic what I had in New York City. I started that because I wanted to show people like if you live in an area like this where where everything's not accessible to you, like to like Asian grocery stores or Asian restaurants, this is how you can make it at home. If I can do it, then you can do it too. So I wanted to document that for them and for myself because I, I know like as I get older, my memory is going too. And I wanted to document how I used to make this. So I, I have it for myself and then I have it for like my family. And you have daughters, right? Yeah, I have two daughters. Um, One is 10 and one is eight. And do they like to cook with Um, mom? Yeah, their interest is peaked like once in a while when they're really interested in a certain dish. Most times they, you know, they hover over the stove and they're like, what what smells so good? Like, what are you doing? How are you making it? It's funny, like one of the last FaceTime conversations my oldest had with my mom, she was like, this is how you make soup dumplings. It's like you have to reduce the stock um, and make like a gelatin and then cut up the gelatin and put in the filling. And when the dumpling is steamed, you, you know, it liquefies into soup. And she could explain this whole process without me even talking to her about it. She watches it. She retains so much of this knowledge now. A lot of adults don't even understand how that works. So I'm really impressed that they are, um, they're so aware of everything. Did you feel like cooking this food also made you feel more connected to something? Yeah, I feel like no matter where I live, if it was New York or Georgia or California, every time I cooked my food that, you know, remind me of home, it became home again. So I felt I felt like it didn't matter where I lived as long as I could create that feeling, you know, wherever I went. And did you start, is the name Soup Belly because of soup dumplings? Is that, is that why? Or I don't even have a really great, (laughs) interesting story about it. 
So years ago, I was trying to come up with a name for the food blog, and I had a hard time deciding on one. So one night, my husband had like five bowls of soup, and he patted his belly, and he said, I have soup belly. So (laughs) I just put that in like for my domain name, and that was it. And now it has stuck for years. And I always tell myself like, okay, when I start selling my food, when I start doing these pop-ups, when I have a social media presence, I have to change it early because people are going to know me by soup belly. And now it's way (laughs) too late. And um, when people see me at pop-ups, they're like, you're soup belly. They don't know my my first name. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to end up on my tombstone eventually because like that. It's too late. So like, that's my story. I can't bullshit you about it. Yeah. And like, give you something like deep and meaningful. No, no. I, just I, I, when I, I used to go by the blissful glutton. And like, forever, I was yeah. like, you know, everyone be like, Oh, you're the glutton. And I'm like, wait, like, after a while, as a woman, I started being like, wait, maybe I'm not as blissful as I thought. I, I don't make soup. Uh, oh, soup. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I feel like I should concentrate on soup recipes more. But <laughs> It's just too late. I. <laughs> it's your brand. Uh, so it's really, yeah, it's really uncomfortable. Not uncomfortable. It's really awkward when people ask me where it came from. Like, I don't have a good story. <laughs> that's a ver- that's actually a very good story. <laughs> so talking about cooking, do you sell your food or were you pre-COVID selling your food? Um, yeah, pre-COVID, I, you know, first I started my food blog on Instagram and I met a lot of people that also did like pop-ups or they were chefs so that, you know, they were caterers. They were like, you should really start selling your food. Cause I used to just give them out, you know, for potlucks and, you know, I make dumplings and bring them over and they're like, you can, you know, you can do this too. So I helped out a lot, you know, a lot of pop-up. I helped out like with Kamayan and a few other ones. And I'm like, okay, I, I feel like I practiced enough. I'm getting the hang of it. I'm going to start to do this too. So I did quite a few a uh, couple years ago, like 2019 before the pandemic. You know, I did a dumpling pop up. I did the fried chicken sandwich pop up. That was the exact time where I think Popeyes and was it Chick Fil A were like at war with each other on who yeah, had like the best Burger chicken King sandwich. Or or something? Yeah, there was, was a major chicken sandwich war. Yes, and. I remember one of them ran out of chicken or something and they were like, we we're not even selling it right now. And that was the, it was perfect timing. That was like the week that I was doing my pop-ups. So I'm like, nobody's selling them anymore. Come to mind. (laughs) Um, That worked out really well. Like I want to take care of like I'm a genius and I, you know, perfect timing, but no, it was, it was a good accident. Um, I did that. I, I do a lot of like fusion foods with like Asian, you know, Asian fusion. Um, I wanted to do tacos with like different, you know, Asian fillings for those. I wanted stuff that was like easy, you know, really casual and easy to eat. So we held them at a lot of like breweries or like the restaurant parking lots where restaurants would would be open to um, hosting us. Was there like pontoon brewing or something? Yeah, I did yes. pontoon a few times. Those were, I love those. Um, they were one of they were my funnest ones. <laughs> Some of them were were pretty harsh. Being in a parking lot when it was like ninety degrees without a tent, like I'm like I, I learned my lesson with some brutal. Of them oh they were gosh. fun though. Well, Atlanta heat is no joke. So with the cooking stuff during the pandemic, you started doing an impressive amount of meals for Letitia Springer's free fridge project throughout Atlanta. And I've just been so inspired by you and Mia of Kamayan, just what you guys have been doing to help the community. And not only that, like, I feel like I'm also learning a lot about how to make really cost-effective meals because some of the meals that you make, you'll list how much it costs per meal. And sometimes it's like an amazing meal, like rice and chicken and veggies. And it's like a dollar 16 per portion or something like that. Right. Can you tell me about your work for them? What motivated you? What mutual aid means to you on an emotional level? Yeah, I could tell you like why I decided to start donating the meals. I know that you read my post before where I, I said I experienced um, homeless, homelessness, but they're for reasons I would rather not get into because I feel like everyone's backstory is different and it always leads people to ask like, why didn't you do this to fix your situation? Why didn't you do that? 
like you could have done this better. The thing is, we don't know what a lot of people go through and what happens to them. You know, we can't really judge them for the situation they're in. It could be like a mispayment, losing your job, um, mental health issues, uh, death of a spouse, or like running away from an abusive situation. I feel like when I experienced it, I I thought about that and how I related to it. So having that empathy for that experience, which really, I mean, it's it's unreal watching during COVID how fine that line is between having a home and not having a home. Yeah. Um, so yes, the reason why is so varied. But that empathy allowed you to really cook from the heart. Yeah. So, I mean, I had that and I was really embarrassed or ashamed to even talk about it until I um, started seeing my friends donating meals to Free 99 Fridge. So um, they were asking for donations for uh, like takeout containers and utensils. So I started donating and I'm like, you know, I'm interested in doing this. What is it? So I checked out their website and I saw, you know, how how it works. and Free 99 Fridge is an organization that order, they offer food through mutual aid. And before that, I used the term um, charity and mutual aid like interchangeably because I didn't realize they were different. I didn't and, know that um, either. Yeah. I learned a lot the past few months. Same. So mutual aid isn't about relying on uh, wealthy donors, but it's like for the people, from the people. So you're helping your own community. There's no like hierarchy, like everybody, it's like horizontal. And there's also no criteria to determine who deserves the food or not. So it's just available, no questions asked, like you just take from it if you need it. I really love that because I felt like at a time when I needed help, I didn't feel like I qualified to go anywhere. That's what really drew me to it too. And Can you I explain never... to people what, how it works and what it looks like, the fridges and, and just people that might not be familiar? So there's multiple community fridges in the Atlanta area. They are located, I, I don't know every single like, exact location, but they would be outside against a building. You know, it could, it could be the brewery or like a coffee house or the side of a restaurant. So there would be like one or two fridges and like a pantry in this like, not, not really enclosed area, but like a roofed area. And um, you can basically drop off anything like anybody can drop off meals pantry items and why is the concept of mutual aid rather than charity so appealing to you i feel like the the fact that there isn't any criteria to determine like who's worthy of the food or not that's what i was drawn to you know anybody can go in nobody will ask questions like why are you here or do you deserve this one example is a story that I read from a volunteer. She was putting uh, like roast chickens into the fridge and there was a woman there by herself, like determining, she's trying to determine how much she can take from the fridge. And the volunteer asked her like, what, like, what do you need? And she's like, I'm trying to decide if I should take one chicken or two. And she said that she had seven children at home to feed. And the volunteer was like, just take them both. And she felt really bad you know, taking two chickens because she's like, well, what if somebody else needs it more than I do? It's like, you have, you know, you have seven kids to feed, like take, take everything you need. And um, I like that story because it, it shows that you can't judge someone from, you know, just seeing like one woman at the fridge trying to take more food than like for one person. Um, you don't know everyone's story. So, you know, I related to so many stories like that. And how often do you take meals? And how many meals do you take? Because it seems like a lot. You and Mia are like gangbusters. <laughs> I'm always trying to keep up with Mia. I don't know how she does it. Um, she has so much energy. So much energy. I, <laughs> I made it. Um, I made it at my goal, like a personal goal, to make at least twenty to thirty meals a week. And um, wow. so I plan that out. I I do it like midweek because. I know a lot of people work full time and they only have time to do it on the weekends. So I feel like sometimes the fridges are packed a little more then because of people's schedules. And since I'm a stay-at-home mom most of the time now, I I can do it anytime on the weekday. So I um I join their Slack channel to see like the the times where the fridges look the most empty. I'm like, okay, I'll do it like on a Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday, for example in the middle of the day between lunch and dinner. 
and it's usually pretty empty those times. So I'm like, uh, that's when I'll shove like 20, 30 meals in, and uh, it, it works. I mean, I'm really happy when I see the fridge is full too. I'm like, okay, this is a really good problem to have. I'll just go to the next fridge. A lot of the fridges are located pretty close to each other if you have a car. So it's easy to just travel from one to the other and drop off. I know Mia does that too. She drops off at multiple ones. And even if you can't cook for listeners, I mean, water bottles, pantry items, personal care, like sanitary items, that kind of stuff is diapers. It's, it's huge. Don't just need meals. They need basics. Um, toilet yeah. paper has been, I've been doing a lot of toilet paper and water myself because I, I do not have the bandwidth to cook 30 meals. That's like a special skill set that you and me have. Yeah. In this kind of same vein, you are a very powerful voice on Instagram for me. The things that you choose in terms of social justice to highlight, the thoughts that you have, the reframes that you have when things happen to me are incredibly valuable. I mean, I love your cooking, but I, I really love your voice equally. When there were the shootings in Atlanta at the, at the massage parlors, you became very vocal about the anti-Asian violence rising in our country. Can you please speak to why you wanted to be so vocal when otherwise you say you're like a little, you don't really like to speak up, but when yeah. you do for me, it's so impactful. I mean, I feel like I've always been vocal here and there. I tried to space it out because I, and it sounds ridiculous, but I didn't want to make my followers too uncomfortable with too much information. And it sounds ridiculous, but even like the day of the shootings, um, earlier that day, I had an a story go live on Shout Out Atlanta. And it was actually touching on anti-Asian violence and how it was crucial to fight against it now. I even joked to my followers, like, don't bother telling me you read it because I don't like attention. Just read it and pretend that I never said anything. <laughs> and then later that night, the shootings happened and it was almost, it was almost like a premonition to me. Like it, it was traumatizing because Everything I was saying in my article, I was just hoping it wouldn't get worse. And then it got worse like that night. And I sort of regret like not speaking up and not screaming about it more throughout the past year, like more than I did already. I felt like we have nothing to lose if we, if we become more vocal about it and if we take more action, you know, things are already getting worse. So like there's, there's nothing to lose you know, using our platforms to, to get political or like to talk about anti-Asian hate and racism. And why do you think it, it has gotten so bad? Racism against Asians has always been there and it's always been really subtle. And we were brought up to just brush it off because a lot of Asian immigrants raise their kids to hide their emotions or be stoic or act like things don't bother you. And we've even seen this with our parents growing up. If they experience somebody calling them a derogatory name, screaming, go back to China, you could see our parents just walking right by acting like it didn't happen. And I guess we learned to do that too, to some degree. And I feel like the majority of us have done this so much that it looks like it doesn't bother us and it makes people think it's okay to verbally abuse us especially the past few years with the pandemic and COVID and the xenophobia, you know, against Chinese Americans because of that made it escalate into physical violence now. I think it was in that article that you're referencing that I read that you said that you have been the victim of anti-Asian slurs. And did you say your children had as well? I mean, I experienced it growing up in upstate New York because I, like I, was, the only Chinese I was the only token <laughs> Chinese person in school. So I had a lot of, you know, the go back to China, like slanting their eyes at me, like, I, you know, the, all the all the stuff that bullies do. I was threatened to be shot when I walked home from school. It was pretty, you know, it it never got to physical violence, but there was always a threat of violence too. going back to present day in Atlanta. My daughter was walking on the street in Kennesaw and somebody flicked her off and drove off with like a Trump banner covered truck. She, she didn't understand what was going on. And she's like, well, why do they not like me? And it was, I still can't really 
you know, she's seven years old. I can't, it's hard for me to um, explain this to her. And I do explain like some people don't like us for these reasons. And, you know, she sort of shrugs it off and moves on, but she knows that, you know, we're not the same or like your mom is not the same and she's not being treated, like we're not being treated the same living here. When you see these types of things come up, I saw that, you know, there was like, I even retweeted it. I think that was like, love our people like you love our food. And I think I remember you expressing some objection in a way, like, wait, we're more than just our cuisine. And just in that same vein, people like me, we want to support the community and I don't want to do it the wrong way. (laughs) Can you tell us what is the right way and the wrong way to, to help fight anti-Asian violence in the United States? I love this question. I feel like (laughs) I talk about this forever, but good. Do please do. (laughs) That's good. Um, That's good. So I feel like a lot of these statements that are being reposted are reactionary. And I feel like we have to sometimes like step back, we have to take a minute and think, will this help us in the long run or hurt us in the end? The reason I don't really agree with a statement like love our people the way you love our food is because I feel like it's playing into this narrative that the media is writing for us. We only matter because we are worth something to society. Mm. Um, We provide food, like Asians in the service industry give you something, therefore you should care about them. There's a lot of us who aren't in the service industry, for example. Do we not matter because we don't, um, you don't see us working at a restaurant or nail salon or a laundromat? That's one of the problems with a statement like that. We, we shouldn't matter because we provide you with things. It's because we're simply human beings. And another thing is, what if you don't like Asian food? Does that mean you shouldn't care about us either? <laughs> um, true, I true. mean, it's, it, only, you know, it only pertains to people who are interested in Asian food or culture. I feel like that divides a lot of people, you know, using a statement like that. I feel like if we see people using it, if we see the media using that to try to humanize the victims, like we should find different ways to tell their story instead of by what they give us. Because I feel like when we're playing this game with the media, like trying to prove our worth in this case with our food, it's like we're trying to reaffirm the model minority myth or this good immigrant stereotype given to us. Like, for example, um, see how hardworking we are. We shouldn't be murdered because of it. Mm. So so in the end, it seems sort of ridiculous to to keep using it. And I feel like the mindset isn't helping our country. It's not helping Black people being murdered by police. It's not helping anyone facing violence due to their race. If we see it, we should we should speak up and say, like, this isn't the right way to do it. Tell our stories a different way. You know, for example... Anytime somebody is murdered by the police, the media is like, well, they had a criminal record or they were using a counterfeit bill or they had a air freshener, the rear view mirror. We, we can't do that because if we as Asians play into this, like it's hurting everyone else more. Like with Brianna Taylor, the people were like, oh, but she was an EMS worker. So that makes it more tragic. But even right. if you know, no matter what she did for a living or what kind of person she is, the death itself is tragic. And that's kind of what you're talking about. I saw that a lot with the victims. Oh, but they cooked for everyone. And oh, they were the best mom. And it's just, yeah, I know the media is trying to counter that negative stereotype with massage parlors by trying to give them like a, a really good story. So people can relate to them, but we don't need to counter it that way by what they offered, you know, just, just talk about, talk about it any other way. (laughs) Yes. That they were human beings that were murdered by somebody that was not a good person. Talking about Asian food has been something that you have done through Soup Belly and your Instagram account, aside from social justice and cooking, you also go to a lot of restaurants, which was another thing I love about you because we're the same <laughs> in that regard. Like I've loved demystifying Beaufort Highway, Gwinnett, Tucker, wherever restaurants that were primarily immigrant owned for 15 years, I've been doing it. So I, I love that that is something that is a passion for you as well. Because like you said, a lot of these places don't have social media presences and a lot of the dishes like I remember when Northern China Eatery came and people were like, wait, like, what's this? 
Can you talk about just your love of restaurants in Atlanta and the kind of coverage that you choose and why you choose it? So when I first moved to Atlanta, I did what most people did. I went to Yelp to search for the best Asian restaurants in the area. And I feel like the majority of them didn't have really great ratings. In New York, you see like four star, five star ratings with thousands of reviews. I'm like, what's going on here? I know it's a smaller city, um, but I want to know why it was it was so low. I would see like one star reviews for, for example, for a dim sum restaurant because they had uh, tea leaves on the bottom of their teacup. <laughs> and they were like, you know, this can't be served. This is horrible. And they give them a one star. Or I feel like there were a lot of um, mismatched expectations of people going to these and they didn't know what these restaurants were known for. They would go there for orange chicken and be disappointed because they're going to an authentic Chinese restaurant. Like you're not getting orange chicken there, you're getting something else. So I'm like, okay, I want to showcase these restaurants and like show them like, this is what they're known for. This is, these are the dishes they're proud of that you should try just to give that awareness on my page. So I feel like I was fighting Yelp in a way (laughs) since I came here. Um, When did you come here, by the way? When did you move from Rochester? I came here from California. So we moved from New York to California. And then we moved here 10 years ago. You're listening to The Food That Binds with Jennifer Zeman on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network. I'm speaking with Candy Hom, food blogger, pop-up cook, and social justice advocate. Do you have favorites you keep going back to that you like to recommend to people? I don't like to. I'm like literally getting asked, what are your favorite restaurants? To me, it's one of the most enraging questions, especially like in my gynecologist. I'm like up in the strap. She's like, so are there any new restaurants that you want to tell me about? I'm like, can we just do this after? (laughs) You know, but you do find some real gems that I have not even heard about. Like, I think you were one of the first people that I heard write about Firestone. Chinese maybe and I have still not gotten over there and every time I pass it I'm like damn it she said it's really good to go there it's supposed to have really good soup dumplings right yeah they had the some of the best soup dumplings when they first opened I think they opened a few years ago and it was in this unassuming strip mall where I get my you know I got my hair cut and I'm like okay how good is this place gonna be it's in Kennesaw it's probably you know um, it sounds typical... like all the markings of a good Atlanta institution, <laughs> honestly, because everything yeah. is OTP. You know? Yeah. yeah. Like you know, it's probably like catering to um, like American taste because, you know, it's Kennesaw. So I'm like, okay, I have time. I'm just going to go check it out. And I feel like I discovered this gem. And I'm like, this isn't on social media. They didn't even have an Instagram account or anything then when they first started. I'm like, this is amazing. You You have to start an account. You have to or I'll, I'll do it for you. I'll keep posting. <laughs> and, you know, everything I had there was great. I think the owner worked with Peter Chang. Oh, and okay. I don't know if you know who that oh, is, yeah. but he, uh, yeah. That so was the he, first person to write about Tasty China in Atlanta. I ate there the day before yeah. they opened. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, yeah, I, Peter Chang's I, amazing. Yeah. I love Tasty China. So I was so happy to find that out. And he started Tasty China. And then all these chefs started branching out and starting their own restaurants with with the same dishes, you know, like the dry fried eggplant is, I found out that that's just Peter Chang's recipe. I haven't found that anywhere else, except like here in Virginia, where he has his other restaurants. Yes. He was a really interesting person because when he opened before Tasty China, there was only this restaurant on Buford Highway that did Sichuan that was called Little Sichuan. Sichuan. It was spelled Sichuan. When Peter Chang opened his first place in Marietta, like Atlanta fell in love with Sichuan food. It really started this spread effect, you know? So now it's fascinating to have watched it grow because now there's like 12 Sichuan. I mean, like then you've got Goose yeah. and Good Luck Gourmet mm-hmm. and High Urban Woo and now Urban Woo offshoot show Spicy. I mean, for me, Sichuan's one of my top three favorite foods. <laughs> Something you said earlier, which I, I want to talk to you about. So you talked about the Shalom Bao at, Firestone being some of the best that you had had in a long time, the soup dumplings. I have in my coverage of Atlanta restaurants been chasing soup dumplings. <laughs> I feel like that's like, like when I find a good one, 
people mm-hmm. like lose it and it's like on Atlanta magazine whenever I write for them about it like it's one of the most popular posts can you tell people where to find the best ones or can you tell people why it's so hard to find good ones or why it's so because like for a long time it was chef Lou Lou is that how you say it Lou yeah okay which I know that she's still selling frozen ones on the side since she closed mm-hmm. if you're a very select few people like my Yuki loves oh, food they yeah. like it a lot you know uh, but um, all the info. <laughs> oh my god, they're like so legit. I mean, when I look at their cooking, I'm like, okay, I should just quit. Whenever they invite me to a dinner or something at their house, I'm like, everything I bring here is going to be trash. But <laughs> <laughs> these are like this. This is this Instagrammer. Yuki loves food. It's a, a, a guy and his wife, and they have an adorable daughter and a dog, and he is just the most prolific cook from soup to nuts. I mean, he makes everything from scratch and there is no cuisine or area of cooking, be it pastry or like some five day sous vide project that he shies (laughs) away from. It is really inspiring to watch if you're not keen on who he is. But back to soup dumplings. Why are they so hard to find good ones in Atlanta? I can tell you my experience of trying to make them and that, can sort of answer the question too. So I took on the project after years of just eating soup dumplings. I'm like, okay, I know this is difficult. Let's let's see how difficult it is. And I actually did talk to Michael. Yuki loves food and like, you know, his <laughs> preferred recipes and methods too. And then um I read a Kenji's recipes on, I think it was Kenji from Serious Eats. Gold standard. Um, yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> And I just marinated on all that information. And I, I saw how intensive it was too. So, uh, I think most of these recipes are two to three days long. You know, you have to reduce the the stock from like uh, bones and, and pork fat, pork skin into like a gelatin and put that into the dumpling. Like, you know, what I said earlier about the process that my daughter even knows by now. Yes. And folding them, I think you have to make 18 pleats per dumpling. And when you see the the dumpling masters make, every single one is perfect. Every single one is weighed equally. They all have the same perfect ratio of meat filling to gelatin. So when they it melts, it's a burst of soup in your mouth when you bite into it. I guess in China, they have like a dumpling school and it takes like years to master different types of dumplings and soup dumplings are like the most complicated one and it takes years and years to master perfectly. So a lot of soup dumplings in the area or in the US are just mediocre. Like to me, they're the greatest thing ever. Apparently there's this like whole chart or something they used to determine like what makes constitutes a great soup dumpling. It has to be like the a thin layer uh, or the thinnest uh, wrapper but yeah, thick wrapper it, really ruin it for me. Yeah, and and the thin wrapper has to be just thick enough to like carry everything without tearing and so being gently picked up too by that little yeah. crown. Like it needs yeah. that needs and to it, happen. Yeah, and it can't stick to the bottom of the tray or the bottom of the bamboo tray, or else it you know it rips too. Like there's a lot of things that go into it that people don't really understand when they just go out and order them. So after I struggled for two or three days trying to my first attempt, I'm like, wow, there's there's so much work and practice that goes into it. Um, I learned to appreciate it a lot more than I did before. Um, I don't take it for granted when I find a good one. I'm like, we have to, you know, I have to promote this restaurant that's making it so well. Like I can't, I don't know if I could ever make it that well. But I think the thing that like made me kind of chuckle inside when you're like, well, at the time it was the best one in Atlanta because that's yeah. like at the time. I mean, it really. So who has your favorite soup dumpling at an Atlanta restaurant today? I love uh, Northern China eateries soup dumplings. Uh, we buy them monthly. We buy like a hundred frozen dumplings per month, and we go through them so much now. And yeah, listeners, if you did not know, you can buy bags of frozen dumplings yes. through Northern China Eatery and you just need to go and look on their Instagram page because they have yeah. platters. Of them. <laughs> they also have a website now where you can just order online Stop or you can it. go. Yeah, oh um, they started that during COVID, which was a great idea. Frank, the owner was like, you know, he had to adapt to the pandemic. Like, how can we how can we make our food more accessible like during the shutdown because you know they need to stay open so they started this website and they um 
you know, an online ordering system to make it even easier. So you don't have to, you know, people like me, introverts don't like talking on the phone or anything like to, to <laughs> order food. Even I'm like, I usually don't order food unless I can order online. No, um, so they have like that. The balls. And, I like to order yeah. everything online. Yeah. What has it been like for you the past year as it relates to food and restaurants? First half of the year, I was really concerned about going to restaurants. So I, I took a break too doesn't seem as apparent because I did go once in a while. In the very beginning, there's a shutdown. We just need to get food and just cook it at home. So that's why you saw me cooking so many dishes. And it was I was really prolific the first few months, I think. Grocery shopping, for example, changed for me. It wasn't just due to worrying about COVID, getting sick from going out in public. It was also all the anti-Asian violence going on too. The more I read about them, I don't feel comfortable. Most of my Asian friends don't feel comfortable going out for food or restaurants. A lot of us tended to just go to Buford Highway for groceries. You know, I went out every seven to 10 days, so I didn't get exposed to, to anything. And I'd only go to like H Mart or Buford Highway Farmer's Market. My husband, who's white, he agreed to go to like Kroger, Costco and things like that to get other ingredients. And it's sort of crazy that we took all these precautions. But the more we saw, you know, what was happening on the news, I didn't feel comfortable going out. He didn't want me to go out to places like that either. We saw a story about an Asian family getting stabbed at a Costco in Texas. We're like, okay, we can't, I'm not going to Costco either. So I didn't go to Costco for like six months. I didn't step into a Kroger for six months. So when people ask like how COVID changed, you know, the way you, you do things, it's not just the pandemic for Asians. It's, it's the, it's the anti-Asian violence going on too. It definitely changed the way I even went out for groceries to feed my family. Another good thing that happened was, you know, pre-COVID, our family had schedules like packed with events. Like my kids had after school activities, dance class, sports, clubs. And we were so busy that I was that mom who didn't have time to cook that much. It looks like I cooked a lot before, but you know, usually meals were like 20 minutes to make and we'd rush out the door. When quarantine started, I got to experiment with recipes and I had time to mess up and start over again because, you know, what else did I have to do? So it changed the way that I cooked for the better. And I also, since people were worried about the economy, a lot of people were losing jobs too. I worried about that a lot because we're just one income. And it's like, well, what if something happened? So I started stockpiling food too. I wasn't hoarding food. I stockpiled like dumplings, pre-made dinners, shelf-stable pantry items. And then I I got better at seeing like how much each meal costs too. So I, we could save more money and, and stretch things out better just in case. So that's how I I feel like I'm really good at knowing like how each meal costs like a dollar or something, which helps with free 99 fridge a lot. Too. I mean, that's a, that's so a I, skill for any mother, yeah. <laughs> you know, yes. how do you think this is going to change restaurants? I just have a feeling it's, it's going to change because I feel like a lot of things that they change inside that like dining rooms might stay and not just because of COVID, but because it just works better for people. For example, there's less contact now. You can order by scanning a code on the table. And even small restaurants, like small Chinese restaurants, have a code on the table now for the menu. Like I feel like stuff like that might stay because people like people like me enjoy it. I don't know if everyone wants that human interaction when they go out, but I just went to Okiburu, the the ramen place in Sandy Springs, and they had partitions between all the booths. I'm like, this is Right. <laughs> not just because of COVID, but I don't, I don't I'm not comfortable have, sitting so close and seeing other people right by me when I eat. I feel like I can't concentrate on the people I'm with and like enjoy the food because I see and hear so much. It's, it's too much. So I hope they just keep the partitions up and everything. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like it too. I love curbside everything and takeout. I am yeah. also one that really loves no contact. Yeah. I feel like a lot of restaurants are changing their business models to adapt and maybe maybe this will work for them too in the long run. Like maybe they'll keep doing this and not not change it back to the way it was as a precaution. Are there any of those struggling mom and pop restaurants that you'd like to give a shout out to just in case listeners are looking for a new place to eat? Yeah, just I mean, basically go anywhere on Buford Highway. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah, I mean, I always do the shout out to Northern China Eatery because I, I just, I love them. And they're in this, um, they're literally in a basement, <laughs> like below an, like a optical, what? Like yeah, I think it's an optical store. And, yeah, I think so. And, uh, and nobody knows, it's very hidden and it just looks like you're going somewhere that you shouldn't go, like you're, you got mm -hmm. lost, but there mm -hmm. it is. It's like in the basement. It's very hidden, and I like that it's so. Um, it's like the secret place that nobody knows about. Everyone knows about it now, hopefully. And I love it because it's not. It's not like the fanciest experience or chi Chinese food that you'll ever have. It's like the comfort food that your mom or grandmother would cook for you, but something that you can get anytime you want. So I love that. I love that feeling when I walk in. It's and very much like a. Not a, it's like a diner kind of feel, like almost like you know, like that's like very utilitarian, but they're so nice. Mm -hmm. And there's there are pictures there all over bordering the ceiling now, where if you're you yeah. can just you can just, you just point point. If yes, you, you can just you point, want. and they're very pretty pictures. I I love the lion's head meatballs there. Those are some of my I favorite. Tried them yet. They're really I, good. They're super tender and flavorful. I feel like I have so many favorites now that I have to make it a thing where I order a new dish each time. And it's hard to do when you have so many favorites. I mean, there's like 20 dumplings on that menu or something now that I remember, because they have like a section, correct me, like for lamb, yes. for shrimp, you mm -hmm. know, so it's, it. I, I fall into my patterns. So I love those cucumbers that have like that Maggie kind of seasoning on them. They're oh, almost yeah. so crunchy, but then I'm swollen and I have to drink lots <laughs> of water. Sure. <laughs> it's worth it well, i love i mean i love them because of their story too i know they were struggling a lot and a lot of these places you couldn't tell they were struggling you know there's a lot of pride too like we they're not going to say they don't want to say that they're struggling they're, they just want to handle it like quietly it's like no we need to we need to sort of make it more loud like make your presence more loud so like they they hired someone to do their social media account and um, start their online ordering system, yeah. their website. They would host, not host like meals because of COVID, but um, you know, have people try their foods to post on social media more. And that that opened them up. That that opened up to the world, like in Atlanta. So I love that they acclimated to the situation so quickly, and that they were able to get through the pandemic right now. But I feel like there's all still. A success story but i feel like they're still struggling like every other place now it's not going to be over you know as soon as the pandemic's over like they there's they still um need the support and they need people to know like you know we still need your help well i mean their social media presence is super impressive right now so hopefully it helps but i do feel like the pandemic really accelerated a lot of timelines for businesses in terms of evolving to curbside or for northern you know evolving to having a social media presence and being able to sell those dumplings speaking of dumplings i saw last night that you posted some questions about what kind of dumplings yeah. people like and if people would like to buy your dumplings if you sold them is this a thing is this the thing that might be happening are you going to yeah, start selling um, food again yeah i I feel like it's time. I took a really long break. I wasn't comfortable doing pop-ups last year for people coming out to see me and for myself. So I took that break, but I want to start getting into it again. I'm like, I I do want to eventually start selling dumplings soon. So I wanted to get it, what people are interested in right now. Like, what kind of dumplings do you want? What do you miss like in the Atlanta area that you can't get? Just so I can I can start soon. And is this like the first baby step towards maybe having a restaurant or a business of your own down the line? Like Mia, I believe is on that track. Is that a goal? Like what is your long-term goal? Right now, since my kids are so young, I still want to see them grow up. And I feel like that if I dove into the restaurant business now, I would never see my family again. And, and I don't want to miss that. So um, I'm starting out small, like I want to uh, get the interest and, you know, start, start small and sell, sell the dumplings and do this sort of on the side for a, a little while before I actually do something more serious. 
you know, as my kids get older and they don't need me as much, then I want to get more serious about it. Like my dream was always to, you know, to open a restaurant or to open something, you know, like a brick and mortar, but for the time being, just, you know, I'm going to start small. So is there anything you want to plug? Any organizations, anything that you want to promote? Yeah. So we were talking earlier about like what are good ways to support the community. And I would say like bystander intervention training would be a great one. Like if you want to look into that and or donate to their website, they offer free training. So you have nothing to lose. And there's a lot of bystanders just standing around when something happens. And and like I feel like my one of my biggest fears is my friends, family or myself like get attacked and nobody comes to help. That's like one of the biggest problems I see like every day on the news now. So I want to plug them. You know, it, um, the organization is called hollaback.org, um, H-O-A-L-L-A-B-A-C-K. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a good one. I would look into stopaapihate.org. Just do your research there to see like how to help. They have a lot of good organizations on the site, but I do feel like some of these things are a one-time deal to help and then people tend to forget. So I feel like we need a long-term plan after the momentum of the movement dies down. You know, like we should bring awareness to subtle racism and how it's harmful to Asian Americans to make people more alert than just react to a massacre after the fact. Take a preventative measure rather than a responsive one. We should keep promoting it after everything slows down and keep reminding people like, we, we need to be preventative more than reactionary, than, than responsive. It's really sad that it takes a shooting to get people interested. I'm, I'm glad that people are interested now, but we need to keep, keep it going. So I would definitely recommend to look into that organization. And um, I always add my free 99 fridge meals to highlights on my Instagram. So if you want to check out my Instagram, it's soupbelly underscore ATL. Feel free to DM me if you have any questions on how to donate or if you'd like me to cook a meal with with a donation, like I'd be happy to do that too. Or for any, you know, any questions. Thank you, Candy, for being here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thank you to Candy Hom for taking the time to speak with me. Please keep up with everything she's doing on Instagram as Soupbelly. If you want to keep up with me on social, you can find me as The Food That Binds or Jennifer Zeman on Instagram and Twitter. Please don't forget to rate and review the podcast because it helps other people find my show and it helps me too. Next week, I'm joined by Ron Sue, Culinary Director for Lazy Betty and the upcoming Juniper Cafe. An Atlanta native, Sue returned after working in Michelin-starred restaurants like La Bernadette to open his first restaurant, Lazy Betty. Lazy Betty got all of the accolades from James Beard to Best New Restaurant from Atlanta Magazine. But it was everything that was happening in Sue's life at the time that I find so interesting and what we're going to discuss next Wednesday. Until then, I'm Jennifer Zeman, and you've been listening to The Food That Binds on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network. 